upcoming. So yeah, if you get your Bibles, you can go to Joshua chapter 20. We're going to jump back into our series in the book of Joshua. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, okay? Lord, we just thank you uh, for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that uh, you desire to speak to us. Lord, you're speaking all the time. You speak to us through relationships with people. You speak to us uh, through your creation. You reveal uh, your nature to us, Lord, but primarily you speak to us through the word of God. And Lord, we love your word. Because the written word leads us to the living word, King Jesus. And Jesus, uh, this morning, it's our heart to run to you, uh, to take refuge in you, to see you in this Old Testament passage. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you'd anoint this time of time in your word, Lord, that it, it would be like a meal for our spirits, Lord, for our souls, that we would be strengthened, refreshed, nourished spiritually this morning, strengthened, God, encouraged. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather in this format, Lord. Uh, we're thankful for the privilege to be together. And so, Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet, yeah, so we're back diving into the book of Joshua. It's been a little while since we've been here. I was on holidays, and then last week um, went a bit of a different direction. So it's good to get back into Joshua. Now, Joshua divides into two parts. In the first half of Joshua, what you see is this, is that Joshua recounts the taking, the conquering of the land of Canaan. So as the children of Israel were led out of slavery after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Joshua leads them miraculously across the Jordan River, and he recounts the enemies and the inhabitants of the land as, that they defeated as they took uh, hold of the land. And then the second half of Joshua is spent on recounting for us the division of the land, the inheritances that each one of the tribes received and the apportioned land that was allotted out to them. So that's where we kind of left off. We, we bit off a big chunk last time. We went from Joshua 15 to 19, and we looked at the inheritances of the 12 tribes. Well, before they ever crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, God had instructed Moses certain things that were to take place when the land was portioned out to the different tribes. And so this morning, we're going to look at two of those things. And they're this. First of all, Moses was instructed that they were, that when Joshua led the people into the land, they were to uh, choose some cities to be what were called cities of refuge. So we're going to talk about that. And then the second thing that the Lord instructed him, that, that the tribe of Levi was to receive an inheritance that was different from the other tribes. They were going to be, rather than receiving one lot of land like all the other tribes did, they were going to be spread out amongst all the tribes of Israel. So we're going to see these two things, the cities of refuge and the inheritance of Levi this morning. And uh, so these cities of refuge are really interesting. This is what Joshua chapter 20 tells us about. Uh, they're of such importance that in the Old Testament, before we even get to to Joshua's account here, three other times we're told about these cities of refuge and the role that they're going to have when God's people enter into the promised land. We read about it in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and now in Joshua. Just like, you know, there's four Gospels, four accounts, so important, four accounts of these cities of refuge so that the, God's people would clearly understand what they were all about. So let's check it out in chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. 
They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. Now, when we read in the Old Testament, before the book of Exodus, before the coming down of the law, before the Lord ever met Moses on Mount Sinai and Moses received the Ten Commandments, God laid down a basic law for humanity, for, for cultures, for the peoples of this world in, in Genesis chapter 9. And the law was this, that if any, anyone was guilty of murder, they were to pay the penalty of their own blood. It was life for life. So you murder someone, it's going to cost you your life. Now, you read that in the Old Testament, lots of times we read that, we go, wow, this is harsh. I mean, you can read all over with regards to the law, and you see that, that it's there in lots of places in the Old Testament law. But the law was established, I would say this, you know, it was established for the benefit of human society, but it wasn't just simply established for the benefit of human society. The Lord, when he gave this law, grounded it in this fact. He said, men and women are made in my image. In the image of God, human beings have been created. So when someone takes the life of another person, their sin is not just against that person. Their sin is against the image and the glory of God. That I've made them, that I gave life, and it's not the right of someone else to take that life or to take the blood of that person. And so the primary reason murder is sinful is because men and women are actually made in the image of God. It's marring the image of God. Number, in Numbers chapter 33, the Lord said this through Moses. He said this, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no allotment can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. It's interesting, even as I read this, I go, wow, you know, the Bible talks about pollution. And the Bible says what pollutes the land is innocent blood being spilled. You know, I didn't say this in the first service, but for me, as I think about this, I just, I'm so sickened by abortion and these things, it's like blood polluting our land. It's a crime, not just against that life. It's a crime against the image of God. It's a crime against the nature of God. And so the Lord said this, the basic rule was that if someone shed blood, they paid for it with their own life. Now you read that many places in the Old Testament, but God did this. As that law was explained and as it was made clear in the word of God, God did this. He made a distinction between murder and manslaughter. 
That, that's a distinction between a murder that's like premeditated, it's done in anger, it's planned out, or it happens in the absolute heat of the moment, but it's done from the heart of a human being to take the life of another, versus manslaughter, which would be something that happens by an accident. Like, you know, all sorts of things can just happen by accident. Farming accidents, you know, the scripture actually uses an example. It's like two men are cutting firewood and one man's swinging the axe and the head comes off the axe and it strikes the other man and he dies. It wasn't, wasn't premeditated murder. It happened by accident. It was a manslaughter. So you think about Israel, as we read about it, they didn't, they didn't have a police force. They didn't have a penal system. You're not going to get shipped off to prison. There's no you know, minimum security or super maxes or medium security prisons. No prison system whatsoever. It was up to, when crime happened, it was up to ordinary people to look after it so that there would be law and there would be order in the midst of God's people. And so it worked like this. If someone in your family was killed, God forbid, uh, then the relatives of that person who lost their life would track down the person responsible and they would avenge the death of their loved one. They would uh, take the life of that one who had taken someone else's life. And it's kind of crazy, but you know, we, we see that in a lot of ancient cultures, right? You can look at, it's very tribal. You look at a lot of cultures around the world and, and we know that that's how things function. Tribal cultures where it's life for life and you avenge. And I, and I read that and I go, wow, it's you know, amazing that Israel didn't turn into the Hatfields versus the McCoys. <laughs> and it just went on and on and on and on. And to make sure that that didn't happen, God did this. He provided a refuge for his people. See, a man who killed someone accidentally could, in in a situation of manslaughter, could flee to one of these six cities. Now, these six cities that are allotted, we're going to read about, they were placed evenly all throughout the land of Israel. On either side of the Jordan, there was three. There was one in the north on either side. There was one on the south on either side. There was one in the middle of the land on either side. And there in that city, the manslayer could be protected from family members who were seeking to avenge the death of a loved one. So when someone fled there, what they would do is they would go, just as we read, to the elders of the city. They would, the elders of the city would have some sort of investigation. They'd call witnesses. If it was found that the, the killing was to, the, uh, to be accidental, then the person could remain in that city and they would be safe and protected within the boundaries of that city until the high priest died. Whoever was serving as high priest at that time until he died, and then when the high priest died, that individual could leave the city and they were free to go home to their hometown and not have to worry about being avenged. So these cities were hugely important in Israel. Like so important that tradition says this, that, that uh, don't you like how, boy, this morning I had to drive Eli to work. He got called into work and... Uh, I was cruising up, and the road just looks so good in Upper Gibsons, doesn't it? Fresh black top and new paint and all clean and nice. Well, in Israel, once a year, they would send out highwaymen, and these men would inspect the roads, inspect the paths that led to these cities of refuge, and they would make sure that the roads were in good condition, that there weren't obstacles that had come up over the past year. They'd repair the roads. They'd make sure all of the signage was in good condition good shape so that the directions were clear. Like literally in Israel, 
everywhere, they had signage pointing people to the closest city of refuge. So that anyone needing to flee to one of these cities knew exactly how to get there because their survival depended upon it. Their survival depended on them safely arriving at a city of refuge. So they didn't want to guess. You didn't want to know where, you know, be wondering where it is. Everybody knew, okay, if something happens, you head to this city. It's the closest city. This is the path that you take, and you'll be safe if you get there. And I love it because I think it's a really clear picture of salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our refuge. The Bible makes it clear that the the directions to Jesus are clear. Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's like the the path is clear. It's marked out. It's very clear in the word of God that there is no refuge outside of Jesus. And the path to Jesus is clearly marked out. And in him there is safety from the avenger of blood. In him... We're free because he's our high priest who died for us. It's interesting to read this because as you read this, it says that, the, that for the manslayer, the ultimate freedom came when the high priest died. Then you could return to your hometown. And our high priest, King Jesus, he died for us to purchase for us freedom from sin, forgiveness of sin, freedom from the law. Freedom from death. Jesus bought us life. And so someone, you know, you think about someone in a situation where they have to flee to the city of refuge. They'd have to leave their hometown. They'd have to leave their spouse. They might have to leave behind children or parents or, you know, their job their hobbies, whatever it is. They had to leave everything to flee for safety. And that's, that's just what we do to be saved by grace. We leave everything to be saved by Jesus. Jesus says, you got to hate everything else in comparison to your love for me. Everything we would call our own, everything, the rights that we would say we have, the privileges that we thought were ours, we have to recognize that outside of Jesus, there's no right to live. We flee to Jesus and we find refuge in him and in the grace of God. And Jesus died so that we might live. And there's no middle middle ground. The Bible says that all of humanity is under the wrath of God. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have to flee to Jesus. We have to run to Jesus for refuge and be covered by him, covered by the blood of Jesus, and there's no middle ground. You're under the wrath of God or you're saved by the grace of God, the Son of God. And so these cities of refuge are a wonderful picture of salvation. They're a wonderful picture of the refuge that is found in King Jesus and in him alone. Let's read on. It says this in verse 7. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh 
These were the cities designated from all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Now, I read that, I go, wow, it's amazing because Joshua tells us that these cities weren't just for the inhabitants of Israel. It wasn't just for Jews. These cities were available to anyone, anyone who had to flee from someone who was pursuing them, flee from an avenger of blood, Jew or Gentile, could flee to that city. And it's an awesome picture of salvation in Jesus because it's, it? it's just for anybody. Anybody who would run to Jesus, he'll save them. It doesn't matter about your background or your past or where you come from. It's anyone. You don't have to be part of a special tribe or a special family. It's just come to Jesus. Run to him and he will save you. It's an awesome picture of salvation. And these six cities are listed and the meaning of their names is really cool. And the order in which they come, Kadesh means this, righteous. Shechem means shoulder. Hebron means fellowship. Bezer means fortress or strong. Ramoth means the heights. Golan means exaltation or joy. These names describe what happens when someone flees to Jesus. When they run to Jesus, he gives us his righteousness, Kadesh. We are carried on his shoulders, like, like on the shoulders of the good shepherd. The government will be upon his shoulders, Shechem. We enter into Hebron with him, fellowship with him. He is our fortress, Bezer. In him we are safe. We dwell in the heights with him, Ramoth, and he gives us great joy, Golan. And so here are these six important cities that God appointed himself, given to provide shelter, prominent, placed in prominent spots and on hills, on mountainsides, at high points, so that the road was clearly marked out, access was clear, the path was obvious, It's just like the gospel. It's just like the gospel by which Jesus provided salvation. And in these cities, there was protection for the guilty as long as they remained in that city. Freedom to return home was only after the high priest died. Unless the, you know, imagine that, you know, you you flee to the city and you don't know if you're going to be there for 40 years or four years. It all depends on how long the high priest lives. If you're lucky, just four years, then you get to go home. But it could be 40. You'd live in this town. And your, sa- your only safety was to stay within the, that, that community. And it's a great picture because in Jesus, there's protection, but you got to remain in him. You have to remain in him. And you know, the Bible puts as much focus on remaining in Jesus as it does in coming to him. You know, often we put a lot of focus on coming to Jesus. But the Bible puts just as much focus on remaining in Jesus. I'm not a fan of the question, you know, can you lose your salvation? Because I just think it's a bad question. It's like leads to all sorts of doctoral arguments. Look, at the Bible just says this, come to Jesus, remain in Jesus. 
And, and we have to constantly be saying, hey, am I abiding in Jesus? Am I dwelling in Jesus? Is, am I being nourished by the vine Jesus? And we need to remain in him, abide in him. And in, it's in the death of Jesus that he secured our full and final deliverance. He is our great high priest who died for us. So we come to Jesus. Now what's amazing with these cities is this, is that it was like only those who had committed manslaughter got to flee there. Like if you committed murder and you were guilty of murder, it was going to be avenged. But all get to come to Jesus. Everyone. No matter how great the sin, we can all flee to him. It's, it's to Jesus we come and we say, Jesus, I'm guilty. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against your word. I've sinned against your Father, I need your protection. I need refuge. I need salvation, Jesus. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross in my place, that you gave your life for my life, that you were buried and that you were raised to life. I thank you for the work of the cross and I thank you for your death. And Jesus, I thank you that in you I have forgiveness. I give you my life. I invite you in to be the Lord of my life. We flee to Jesus. We come to him. Now let's read on. It says this in Joshua chapter 21. It's a city of refuge, but then Joshua begins to tell us about how the Levites got their inheritance. It says this in verse 1. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel And they said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Now we've talked about this. The tribe of Levi was different from the other tribes, whereas, like I mentioned earlier, the, each of the other tribes received an apportioned uh, part of land, the tribe of Levi didn't get an allotted inheritance. Instead, they were scattered. They were sprinkled like salt. That's what I think about. Sprinkled like salt amongst the tribes of Israel. Now, the Levites were those who worked in the tabernacle. They, they cared for the worship of God. They looked after and led the nation in the worship of God. They cared for the spiritual life and well-being of the nation of Israel. The priests came from the tribe of Levi, and they were spread. This chapter goes on to tell us that they were spread in around in 48 cities around the nation of Israel, which meant this, that, and it's almost perfectly divided to four cities amongst every tribe. And And so what it meant is this, is that every person in Israel lived close to a Levite community. There was a town where Levites lived nearby, down the road, somewhere near to you. I think about it, it's like back in these days, someone this morning, they they hit their phone, I won't tell you who it was, and their phone started reading the text out loud while I was teaching, you know, it started, it was pretty loud. But, you know, like back in these days, it wasn't like today where you got your phone and you can just pull up your Bible whenever you want, or you can just pick up a, a Bible anywhere. Lots of us, we just got multiple copies of the Scriptures uh, in our homes, and we have tons of access to the Word of God. 
But it wasn't like that in those days. I mean, it was, you know, a scroll of the Word of God was an expensive thing. It took a scribe a long time to write that out by hand. And so the Bible, there wasn't access like, it, like we have today. And so the Levites were those who knew the Scripture. The Levites were those who had copies of the Scripture. The Levites were those who, who uh, served the Lord and taught the Word of God to the people of God. And so it was really awesome to have a town of Levi nearby where you could go and get instruction with regards to the Word of God. Now Levi is one of the sons of Jacob and along with his brother Simeon, they were guilty of a, a, a crime against Jacob. They had done this. Uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 32 how a, a son of Shechem had raped their sister. It's a brutal story in the Word of God. And so Simeon and Levi went and they exacted revenge against the men of Shechem. They killed all the men in the city of Shechem. And Jacob said this about his son. He said, you brought harm to my name amongst the Canaanites. You've made me a person of disrepute in their presence. And so Simeon, when he blessed his sons, he said certain things, or sorry, Jacob, when he said blessed his sons, Simeon and Levi said certain things about them. He said they weren't going to receive an inheritance like the other tribes. He said Simeon and Levi would both be scattered amongst the children of Israel. So when we turn to the book of Joshua and we read to read about these tribes getting their inheritance, Simeon was placed in the southernmost part of Israel. And what happened to Simeon is this, is that Simeon is a tribe that just kind of disappeared. They just kind of got assimilated into the people around them and the tribe around them. And Simeon disappeared and just fulfilled the prophecy of Jacob. But Levi... The curse against Levi was transformed into a blessing, and it happened this way. It's told in Exodus chapter 32 and 33 on Mount Sinai. When Moses was there and he received the Ten Commandments from the Lord, he was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And meanwhile, down in the valley, the children of Israel uh, were wondering where Moses was and how long things were going on and what had happened to him. They took their gold. You know the story. They fashioned a golden calf. And then Aaron began to lead them in idolatrous worship with this golden calf and the people let loose. It was all just mayhem down in the valley. And so when Moses came down, remember he broke the tablets? And he said, who's on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi said, we're on the Lord's side. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Levi to strap on their swords and to begin and go and slay their brothers. And so Levi, it's brutal, man, went and began to kill their relatives, their friends. And on that day, 3,000 people died. That's when we talk about when the law came down, 3,000 died. When the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. And it was very painful for Levi. They had to do this against their, their brothers and their relatives who had rebelled against the Lord. But God said this, because Levi served me in this way, because Levi responded to me in this way, I'm going to take the, the, their sin of the past, I'm going to turn it around to good. And Levi said, Lord, from here on in, I'm going your way. And you know, that's the case for you and I. No matter what our past, no matter what our history, no matter what our sin, we can turn and we can say, Lord, from here on in, I'm going your way. And the Lord can do this. 
He can take all of the past and the sin and the brokenness and, and whatever it is, and He can do wonderful things in our lives. He can open doors and He can bring forth good for, for His glory and for our good. You know, Simeon never broke the pattern. He just continued to go along with the flow for the rest of his life. And, and, and we can be like that. We can go, you know, I blew it back here. And then that just becomes the pattern of our life. But Simeon, uh, but Levi turned it around. And when we repent and turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I messed up. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against your father. I ask you to forgive me. The Lord can turn our mistakes for for good, for his good, for his good and his glory. And so this chapter recounts the cities that were given to Levi. I'm not going to read them all. I'll spare you from me stumbling over all these names, okay? But one that's interesting is this, is that Hebron was given to Levi. We came, all of the cities of refuge were given to Levi. They ran the cities of refuge. And they received the city of Hebron, which is really interesting because we talked a lot about a character in Joshua by the name of Caleb. Remember Caleb, 80 years old? He said, give me that hill. Let me take that hill. And do you remember the city that he went and took? The city of Hebron. Caleb won that as his inheritance, but it's amazing. Caleb did this. He gave his inheritance to the priests of the Lord. He, gave, he surrendered that which he had given to the, the purposes of God, and Hebron became a city of refuge. Hebron became the city where the Levites lived. Just kind of cool picture of Caleb. Just take him up another notch as a man of God. Jump with me all the way to the end of chapter 21, verse 43. It says this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given them all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Man, those are some awesome verses right there. If that is not underlined in your Bible, that is worth underlining Joshua chapter 21, 43 to 45 tells us this, that God was faithful, that God gave Israel all of the land that he had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He kept his covenant with their forefathers. God gave them victory over every enemy in that land. God gave them rest from war. Man, not only victory, but they didn't, not all life of war. They were led into rest. And God kept his promises, Joshua says. Not one word of all of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Nothing fell to the ground that God said. All came to pass. It was all fulfilled. And I love these verses because as the people of God, we, we can have this same assurance by faith, we can lay hold of these same promises and we can know this, that as God's people, his covenant with us will not fail. It won't. Boy, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you've come under the blood and been washed in the blood, I'm telling you, that covenant will not fail. 
There's forgiveness in Jesus. Boy, we can take hope in this. God will defeat all of our enemies. Isn't that awesome? Like you just think about the enemies that you battle, the sin that you fight with, the thoughts that you wrestle, maybe actual physical enemies. All of their enemies were defeated. God led his people to, visit, to victory. God's going to lead us to victory, church. And Joshua said this, and God kept his word. Everything that he promised, everything that he said to us, nothing fell to the ground because his promises can be trusted. He keeps his word. It's awesome. The covenant of God, the power of God, the promises of God. Look at these are the spiritual resources we rely on and count on as the followers of Jesus, as those who have run to him. And so I think about these texts this morning, just three simple applications, okay? First one's this, church, run to Jesus, man, run. I got to tell you, he's cleared every obstacle out of the way. The path is clear. The word of God tells us the directions are clear. You just run to him, run to him. Run to him and there is refuge and safety and protection and forgiveness and mercy and grace and hope in King Jesus. He's our city of refuge. Jesus is where we run. That's where we run to. So I want to just encourage you, run to Jesus all the time, every day, every moment. The second thing is this. Know that as we turn to Jesus, he wants to take that which was sinful. He wants to take the mistakes that we've made and he wants to turn those things into a blessing. He wants to turn curses into blessings. God wants that that, that thing in the past or that thing that's devastated you or that thing that you're like, man, I, I just want to encourage you. As you run to Jesus, Jesus wants to turn it into a blessing. He wants to use that for your good and for his glory. And the third thing is this, is know this, that God will keep his covenant with us. He will defeat our enemies. Not one of his good words is going to fall to the ground. He keeps his word. His promises will not fail. Church, run to Jesus. <laughs> we can't hear that enough in these days. We can't hear it enough. Run to Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let's pray this morning and invite the worship team to come. Lord Jesus, this morning we do just that. In our hearts, we run to you, Lord. In the thoughts of our minds, we run to you. And Jesus, we acknowledge that you are a refuge, Lord. Jesus, we acknowledge before you that we're sinful. And Lord, we're totally dependent upon you saving us. There's no good work we can do to earn it. There's no practice of morality that's going to tip the scales in our favor. There's not a holy scoreboard in heaven where our good outweighs our bad. No, Jesus, we are totally dependent upon you saving us from our sin. And so, Jesus, we just confess that we're sinners before you. We ask, Lord, that you'd wash us in the blood of Jesus. We ask, Jesus, that you would forgive us our sins and come and live in us and dwell in us and protect us and guide us and 
give us salvation. We ask it in your name, Jesus, because we're totally dependent upon you. You're our city of refuge. You're our strong tower. You're the protection of our life, Jesus. And so, Jesus, to you we run. Lord, I pray we'd be really good at running to you. And Lord, I thank you that in the midst of a world that's lost its direction and full of fear and full of much chaos, hearts that have lost hope, Lord, I thank you that we have a refuge where we're safe and we're secure. Thank you, Jesus, that we can abide in you. I pray, God, your grace upon your people this morning in Jesus' name.